0: This episode of AHLA Speaking of Health Law is brought to you by AHLA members and donors like you. For more information, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Um, This video installment is put out by the AHLA Antitrust Practice Group, and it's the second of two videos we've done on the uh, Sutter trial in Northern California. So, The first video was a brief one, gave an overview of the case. Um, If if you want more backdrop, I suggest you check that out Um, because today we're gonna talk about how the trial went, um, the results of the trial, and maybe some takeaways that practitioners or um, companies in this space might want to keep in mind. So we're gonna take sort of a roundtable format to this today. Um, So I have um, two really fantastic, um, professionals here from the healthcare antitrust space. Um, Michelle Hale, who's a partner at Wilson Sonsini, and Paul Long, who's a director at NERA. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves, and then we'll dive right in.
0: Hi. Um, Kai, thank you so much for asking us to join today. Looking forward to the discussion. Um, as you noted, I am a partner at Wilson Sonsini, out of our DC office. Um, and prior to my uh, my time in private practice. I spent a decade at the Federal Trade Commission working uh, with many, many, many um, healthcare matters, including lots of hospital mergers. Um, So happy to be here today and kind of treading old and familiar ground.
2: Thanks, uh, Michelle and Kai. I'm also very happy to be here, happy to talk with you. Um, I am an economist and an expert that really specializes in healthcare antitrust matters. Um, like this case Uh, and uh, you know, I do a lot of M&A work um, with hospitals, insurance companies, physicians, um, and then a lot of also antitrust matters in healthcare, monopolization cases, questions of foreclosure, questions of conduct. Um, So really interested to be able to talk about this a bit.
1: Thank you both for being here. And again, my name is Kai Rosga. I'm from Davis Wright Tremaine and um quick disclaimer none of us were involved in this case we are just armchair quarterbacking here um so you know um please keep that in mind um and i don't want to bury the lead so it was a five-week trial and um it was a complete victory for sutter health it was a jury trial and the jury um decided entirely in sutter's favor um so what is this case about brief overview again go back to the previous video for more detail but this is a class action lawsuit filed by um, consumers. Um, and here, consumers are health plan subscribers uh, in Northern California. And the, defendants, uh, the defendant is Sutter Health, a large healthcare system in Northern California. And the plaintiffs essentially uh, entered this case with two main theories of how um, Sutter Health uh, monopolized um, healthcare markets. One was that they engaged in tying uh, um, unlawful tying by engaging in all or nothing contracting with, with, with payers, um, which means um, requiring all hospitals be in network in order for any of them to be in network. And the other allegation or main allegation was that they also, um, that the hospital system uh, um, prevented payers from engaging in steering of patients um, uh, within their network to different providers uh, mainly uh, to uh, send patients to or subscribers to lower cost hospitals. So the theory was that this inflated the cost uh, to insurers uh, and that that was passed on um, to subscribers in the form of higher premiums or, or cost sharing. That was the plaintiff's theory. Um, the jury did not accept it. it, it ruled entirely um, in favor of Sutter Health. Uh, the verdict form had nine substantive questions Uh, The jury answered the bare minimum. Uh, They answered two, which was uh, enough to throw the case out because those two questions were really fundamental threshold questions of one, was there tying? um, And two, was there anti-steering provisions in the contracts that Sutter Health had with with these payers? Um, And so uh, what I thought we would start the discussion is um, exactly there, which is uh, this question of was there tying? Was there anti steering in the contracts between Southern Health and payers? And um, there, we actually saw a shift in the plaintiff's theory um, as the case proceeded, which may help uh, explain the outcome. And so, uh, to, to, to sort of help us um, understand that shift, I thought I would start by asking Paul what, what, what is all or nothing contracting? And, and what is it? How do you compare it to system wide contracting, which is what the case sort of morphed into? Uh, over time.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Guy. That's a great place to start. Um, And let's start with, I guess, where we ended up, which is system-wide contracting. What does that mean? Um, I think at its heart, it really just means there's a contract that covers multiple hospitals. Um, But that fact alone, uh, I guess, as we saw here, really isn't enough, right? You could have a master contract that applies to lots of things. have lots of customization of different prices different terms different participation for each hospital that's part of that master contract so simply saying there's one contract really doesn't ultimately get to the conduct or to the economic question that was really at issue Um, and i think what the plaintiffs had set out to prove was really there was something more there was this sort of forced standardization or Sort of suboptimal customization that wouldn't have occurred and um i guess a, a, a credit to the defendants here you know they successfully argued and convinced the jury that no you know yes there was maybe a master contract but there was actually a lot more variability um than i think plaintiffs Set out to first prove.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a that's a really good way of putting it, Paul. Um, and I guess Michelle, I, I I was curious to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, what is the testimony that ended up coming out, uh, and um, how does it explain the verdict on these sort of threshold questions of whether um, there was, for example, all or nothing contracting, and 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 you know specifically, sort of, does that. How do you view that shift in the theory um, as potentially explaining the outcome here?
0: Yeah, so I, I mean, I think to to pick up on what Paul said last, um, you know, having there, there could be a, a layer of complexity complexity below a system level, a system wide contract, right? Um, and you saw kind of in a lot of the. Uh, fact witnesses questions about whether they had examined the contract and whether they had looked at that complexity and whether you know that in and of itself was a problem, right And it didn't seem that there was um, kind of a level, that next level deeper to kind of really examine the prices. And um, I I can understand, you know, I'm sympathetic a little bit to the plaintiffs here because I think what they were doing was really, really hard. It's hard to get class cert. It's hard to get damages cert. Um, It's hard to establish a pass through from the insurers to the, the end consumer. Um, it, it's hard to face a, a case where the insurers are kind of your key witnesses. And there's there's a real kind of credibility problem, I think, from, from a jury's perspective that insurers are not particularly sympathetic witnesses, right, and that's that was like key and critical testimony that the plaintiffs needed to rely on. Um, so I think, you know, absent a, a really strong frame of how competition in, these healthcare markets works. Um, it, it was hard for, probably hard for the jury to figure out how to kind of put all the pieces together because you did have testimony and facts come across that, um, that, that the hospital was able to impose, um, you know, the, to leverage its, its position in, in um, negotiating with the hospitals, uh, I'm mean, sorry, negotiating with the insurers, um, whether to include more of its hospitals or the terms that it wanted or resist steering mechanisms. Um, and, you know, the question then becomes, how were they able to do that? Um, I, I think it, it, it seems like, you know, in, of course, we weren't there, but it seems like in reading through um, all of the material about this matter, the defendant's themes were pretty strong um, and they come through in all of the press, whereas you don't really see the same um, the same thing come across from the plaintiffs. And I think they just had a very, very hard um, road to toe uh, because the hospital pricing is incredibly complex and it's hard to to deconstruct that, you know, when when we were bringing hospital merger cases, we were lucky to not be in front of a jury, <laughs> I would say. Yeah,
1: <laughs> bench trials, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, what, what struck me um, is that, you know, it, it seems like ultimately, there was not testimony indicating that the insurers were forced to include all of the hospitals, right? That there wasn't uh, actually a forced, sort of compelled tying of, of hospitals in one market to the other, and so um, that seems to have caused the, the plaintiff's counsel to have to sort of develop their theory and, and rely a little more on, for example, the anti-steering part of their of their um, of their of their case. Um, which you know, um, as a trial lawyer, uh, you know, it, it's probably, I guess you could say it's not surprising as a trial lawyer to see that uh, a jury may not react well or positively to seeing a promise made at the start of the case about what it would be about and then seeing even slight deviation from that you know, um, by the time you get to closing. So um, again, without speculating or, or pretending like we know exactly what the jury was thinking, um, I guess I would just say I wasn't surprised that that sort of inconsistency or evolution in the theory, although perfectly permissible right, as, as a matter of law, uh, might've um, you know, had some impact on, on the jurors. Um, and so, yeah, I guess my, my, my other question, you know, this one's really for Paul. Um, you know, so if, if you're in the plaintiff situation here and, and, and you're seeing that the fact evidence, the witness evidence coming from the executives, um, from the insurers, if It's not really putting together that, that story of, 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 um, of being compelled, right, or being coerced. I, I think that was the word you used. Um, if you're not seeing the fact evidence sort of giving that narrative very explicitly, can economic evidence or can, can expert testimony from economists help connect some of those dots and, and still push you across the finish line?
2: Yes, uh definitely. And I think it's a good thought. Um I guess I'd first say, you know, as a general matter, um this is true in a lot of tying cases, right? Um where you know there's the notion of sort of literal tying, and then there's a notion of some sort of economic tying, which may be more nuanced but still achieve a similar outcome. And so it's often the case that the economist is brought in to really kind of explain what might be happening under the surface in sort of a in an economic sense that it she's tying. And so sort of specific to this case, you know, there were multiple contract provisions that were really at issue and multiple practices at issue. And kind of uh, as the economist on the plaintiff side, how you connect those Different things, and so to say, this is how they all work together, can be a interesting and complicated economic question. <clears throat> um, and yeah, I, I guess I'm sympathetic to, to that exercise. You know, it can be really complicated, and there can be a lot of trade offs you need to take into account in trying to understand what was the effect of a certain behavior. Um, I'll also say, you know, on the on the defendant side there's equal complexity because certainly there's a question or there's an allegation of coercion but um, particularly sure hospital contracting is a contentious negotiation and there can be some difference between what one side strongly prefers versus true coercion and sort of teasing that out and saying you know is this really a coercion case or is this just At first glance, you know, somebody doing something they'd rather not do, but eventually negotiating an efficient outcome, you know, that's a tricky call and requires a lot of analysis. And um, I think that really came, came down to one of the key issues in this case, you know, okay, you saw insurers having a particular way of wanting to contract, and you had Sutter having a particular way of, Wanting to run its system, you know where those had to compromise or have to meet is that outcome the results of kind of coercion and one side winning or was it really a give and take and was a very complicated negotiation process um, and I think that's a you know that's a question where you really need an economic expert.
1: Yeah, I mean it seems like the co- one of the main themes already coming out of this discussion is complexity, right? And and really. We, as, as, as lawyers or economists, we, we're used to probably communicating with sophisticated in-house counsel, uh, federal regulators who specialize in antitrust, um, you know, a, a bench trial. We have a judge. We've spent months educating. Uh, totally different situation to have a lay jury, right? So, um, you know, sort of thinking about that complexity, this trial, obviously, even though it, ultimately by the verdict, it came down to these two simple questions. Is there tying? Is there anti-steering? No doubt, and we can see in the record, significant time was spent on other elements of the antitrust claims that, that would have had to be proven here. Right, even if you had um, a jury verdict that said yes, there was tying, there were still additional questions they would have had to answer yes to in order to establish a violation. So there were um, questions of market power, foreclosure, um, harm to competition, causation, damages, all these things. We we now will never know what the jury would think about those issues. Um, but the evidence came out and the jury heard it, right? They heard it through fact witness testimony, they heard it through expert testimony. So I'm wondering, and maybe Michelle, we, we, can, we can kick this off. I'm wondering what you think the impact of all that testimony might've been. Uh, you know, we, we, we can't really get in their heads, but, you know, all we know is they voted no and no to these two questions of whether there was tying and whether there was steering. Um, but, you know, we can still sort of maybe uh, have a bit of a thought experiment about what impact uh, all that evidence might have had in influencing how they ultimately decided the case.
0: Yeah, I mean, there. I think you know one. I guess the elephant in the room, to use the defendant's lingo, um, is Kaiser and how you how you think about Kaiser. Um, I, you know, I, I thought in thinking about this case, I, I wondered whether the outcome would be different if it were a, a hospital system um, with thirty three hospitals. On the east coast without a a strong vertically integrated provider constraining um, the hospital because it undoubtedly does. And I think, you know, it it is the case that um, that Kaiser can be a strong market participant and also not a competitor and that Sutter could have market power. Um, And those two things aren't, they're not binary. They, you know, they can coexist. Um, I, but I think it's hard when you're making kind of an up or down decision on, on a, on a legal claim, how to factor in all of those different, those different components. And, and the, the testimony that came, some of the testimony that came out, you know, would have been testimony that I would have loved to see when I was at the FTC, um, that would have been incredibly useful to, to use to block a deal. But that, um, you know, that, it, this is a different context. It's a different um, legal standard, and you know, it, it also made me think as a practitioner who is um, busy defending companies in front of the FTC and DOJ all the time. Um, you know, the chair of the FTC right now is is out there saying the current laws don't um, don't really allow for. Uh, for damages they don't really allow for us to 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 fix the the bad anti competitive conduct that's out there, and that this could be you know I could see her using this as an example, you know whether I agree with it or not, um, and, I, and I think, although Sutter one you know as a practitioner, I just I I. Worry about the level of exposure and the things that came out in this trial, some of the party admissions that came out that are that were just covered in the press. Um, There are some really kind of problematic things, Uh, you know, not being a juror, I don't I don't know how they reconciled all of those things, but. um, I do think that uh, the that the defendants played the Kaiser card really, really well, Um, and that probably complicated matters for the jury.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, having grown up in California, I, I don't think you can drive very long on a highway without seeing a, a billboard uh, that mentions Kaiser Permanente. You know, maybe that's not obvious to people in the other um, half of the country, or or or. Uh, but but yeah, they're, they're a huge force out there, right? And so um, this question of of sort of market power, um, I I I totally agree with that, Michelle. That the question of market power was sort of lurking in the background the whole time, which is which is. Um, does Sutter have market power, even if it doesn't matter if they didn't tie, but um, I have to imagine that the jury was thinking about um, what's the nature of competition between Sutter and other providers um, and what is the position that they have relative to the payers they're negotiating with? And that that must have somehow seeped in um, to their sort of analysis of of these sort of more fundamental questions. Um, Paul, does, does that... Does that jive with, with your sort of thinking about the case? Or, or, or how do you see it as, as an economist? Like, how do you, you know, how do you make that leap from, okay, you have a big company, it's a big defendant. Okay, you, you tell the jury, as a plaintiff, big is bad. Okay, now you have to say, where, where, how does that link up to, to, to something that's anti-competitive or harm to competition? That coercion that you were talking about earlier. I mean, how, how, how do you see that playing out? Um, how, how would it potentially play out? Um, in a case like this.
2: Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think this is where you have a, I, I guess, a fun economic question, and maybe my <laughs> sense of the word is too perverse. Um, but I think you really, you have two theories of the way competition works, right? And you have, from the plaintiff's side, you had, well, yes, Kaiser's big, but they're different enough that they're really not a competitor in the way we might want to normally think of competitors and on the defendant side you have really okay at most this is sort of clash of the titans where you have this really really fierce competitor in kaiser that has an undeniable influence and kind of i guess where it's fun is the economist gets to come in and sort of explain uh, the theme of the day complexity you have this really complicated system you have a complicated process of competition how does it work and what really matters in the end? Um, I, I think it's an interesting and ongoing question. Um, that, yeah, I, I would also say I think it can, you know, the debate can generalize to other parts of the country. Um, and increasingly, you do see more, um, if not vertically integrated systems, sort of changing the way the healthcare delivery system works. And sort of what that means for kind of the debate of competition. Is is an interesting one to watch going forward. Um, the other thing I'll say just as sort of a you know an issue that it's hard to know exactly how much weight it played, but it, it you know, we can all think it probably influences to some degree is you know that in every healthcare antitrust case, there's a question of is healthcare different? You know, are motivations different? Are the players more altruistic? Um, you know, what, what does it mean to have a nonprofit? profit um, and, and I think that in some sense, that sort of is a wild card, right? There's particularly on the economic side, there's models of how that might matter a lot, but there's also models where maybe it doesn't matter so much. Um, and I think, especially in sort of jury trials where you have likely a variety of opinions on that question, it's kind of a wild card. What, you know, what does it matter That's a healthcare case and is that really something special is, is something you always have to kind of keep in the back of your mind. That's a great point, Paul. And
1: I think, I, I'm sure
2: Michelle would agree with me that
1: at the FTC, you know, we would hear the nonprofit argument a lot when we were investigating hospital mergers. And you know what, from, from the regulators, you get, a, you, get a, you get a shrug, you know, you get a, well, uh, so what, you know, not-for-profit, you still have a dynamic of negotiations um, to be a network, um, whether you're a nonprofit or a profit doesn't really impact things. But this is one of those rare situations where the audience isn't an expert audience, right? It's a lay jury. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's not a surprise that the defense pushed really hard on uh, the nonprofit status, the charity care, um, the government care offsets that they have to do. Um, so, yeah, but, but um, we'll never know, I guess, how much that influenced things. But... but I guess maybe um, an interesting takeaway for people who might be defending such cases in the future.
2: Yeah, and I'll say, I mean, I think that's what makes healthcare a bit special is kind of, there is a question, there is more of a human dynamic, I guess, to some of it than it is if this was sort of a commodity case. And yeah, you know, it's hard sometimes to know just how much you know the, the various, audiences, whether it's a jury, whether it's um, regulators, whether it's a judge, you know, how much weight they'll put into the kind of human aspect in a given setting. Um, But it's definitely something to kind of keep an eye on for future cases.
1: Yeah, and the human aspect weighed against the fact that you do have a clash of titans. You have large insurers, you have large healthcare providers, they're engaged in tough negotiations, um, you can almost imagine a, a, a juror throwing their hands up and saying, why, why, why am I going to get in the middle of this?" you know, um, you know I mean it's sort of as a, if you put yourself in the perspective of a jury, you can could, you could imagine someone walking away from, from, from four weeks you know, of, of hearing evidence on these issues and sort of maybe maybe saying, you know, I, I'm not sure if I want to really get involved. Um, but that takes us to the, the last topic which, which I, I, Michelle, I would love to have you um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, representing clients, uh, in this space, um, what, what, what are your takeaways? Sort of, you know, I guess there's two ways to think about the takeaways. One is substantively what does this mean for, for providers who want to engage in, in, in system wide contracting or, or have anti tiering um, uh, uh, positions that they take in negotiations with payers? And then maybe more broadly, what does it mean for um, assessing? Uh, or approaching a trial, or or sort of st- uh, st- uh, tactical decision making um, for 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 uh, uh, healthcare trials.
0: Great. So, yes, on the, on the first, uh, you know, I don't think to your to your point, Kai. I don't think that this this case um, provides a lot of direction uh, uh, for us um, because while Sutter won, um, I still think that. I don't think I change my counseling practices for my clients. I, I, I think you know the calculation has to be these are risky strategies to employ. Um, you need to consider the features of the market um, where you're operating when you're considering these these features, these contracting features um, and you need to really have a, a robust calculus of what your risk is. Um, once you do those two first pieces of analysis um, to figure out whether this is something that you would be kind of willing to take to the bank, um, the way that Sutter did, and you know, then from a litigator's perspective, uh, you know, again, I, I commend the plaintiffs because I think they had a really, really difficult road to hoe, and the fact that they got all the way through it is r- remarkable. Um, but you know, and from a defendant's perspective, there's a lot of exposure. There is there is a lot of really ugly stuff that came out of this case for the defendants. Um, you know, to to the point that Paul was just making about the human element and the, the nonprofit perspective and and the do gooder uh, arguments that come out of um, defending healthcare clients. Yeah. You know, you have an opportunity there where the plaintiffs are going to try to poke holes in it, and they did. You know, they they successfully did, and the hospital system's quality was was um, called to question a number of times. There was a um, a, a big sideshow about how its nurses and staff are treated um, and paid. Um, there, you know, th- these are kinds of ugly things that have you know. Exposure and risk for the client in, you know, in a non-antitrust setting that will continue for years, um, and and you might really not want your, you know, your business. It's going to be disruptive to the business and kind of on an ongoing basis. So I think, you know, the takeaways are really really analyze those your your risk tolerance and the necessity of having these kinds of. Um, creative contracting practices, and then also have a really robust compliance program. Do your antitrust training. Focus on document hygiene. Do the things that you need to do to make sure that if this underbelly does get exposed through litigation, that you you're on um, your P's and Q's. Yeah,
1: that's great, Michelle. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, uh, on the point about the gray area, I think you need to point nowhere other than. The fact that we have uh, a, a, ju- a jury verdict that has absolved Federal Health for the exact same conduct—I mean, literally—I mean, if, I think if you line it up; it's very similar. Uh, that that a California AG-led case led to a massive settlement and 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 required um, ceasing some of this very conduct. So uh, definitely um, a gray area for us as as as, as lawyers. But Paul, um, I guess for the final word. Um, as an economist, what's, what, what, what are your takeaways? Um, what kind of advice would you, how would you approach advising a client in this area maybe differently or maybe not based on, um, on following this trial?
2: Well, I'll say, I mean, I think it goes to that gray area. And I think economists certainly have a role to play in navigating that gray area, right? And I think, you know, you have Sutter, multiple cases as sort of potentially some guidance there. You have other cases around the country, where there are instances and in, in which sort of restrictions on steering or restrictions on behavior or pricing, they do occur and they're they're allowed. They're actually you know justified. Um, and I don't think there is clear general guidance at the moment as to when to pick one scenario versus the other. Certainly. know we can dive deep into a case and figure it out um but i think you know the whole profession be it attorneys be it economists has can have some work to do and you know trying to set out some general guidelines about when is it good to have some restrictions when might it facilitate a lower price or um, better quality and when is it harmful when does it impede competition Um, and I, i i think at the moment we're left with you know, you, you really have to dig deep, but obviously that's time consuming, that's resource intensive. Um, and I, I think we as collectively as a profession can sort of think hard about what are some general rules and sort of general guidance we can follow um, to make the process more efficient.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I have one concrete piece of advice for folks out there. You know, you got to call Michelle and call Paul, I guess, if you know, (laughs) run into these things. Um, So, uh, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Michelle. Really appreciate uh, this discussion. Um, Everyone out there, I hope hope you enjoyed it as well. That's us signing off. Thanks again.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA, speaking of health law, wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.